When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, today we're going to discuss ecofeminism. And I have to say, when I first heard about ecofeminism and we thought about it as a podcast topic, I thought, oh, this will be really kind of easy because its name implies what it is. It's an interest in both ecology mm-hmm. and feminism. Right. Made into one word. Uh, but it turns out it is just as complicated as all other feminisms that we have discussed on this podcast. Surprise! Yeah, the reason why uh, we are talking about ecofeminism is because how ecofeminism works is an article that's been sitting on our website, HowStuffWorks.com, for quite a while now. Ecofeminism actually existed on the site long before How Feminism Works, which I wrote. It's a very great article. And... uh Molly and I were always a little bit surprised by that. And we kind of, you know, talked about, you know, uh, doing a podcast on it and then other things would pop up. And then finally we said to ourselves, we said, let's do ecofeminism. And you're right. It, it does seem kind of simple and kind of a no brainer on the outset, but it is a little complicated when you start digging. I think you can make any topic complicated by just tacking feminism on the end of the word. Some would say yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's get in. As I said, on its simplest level, it is what it sounds like. It is an interest in ecology and it is an interest in feminism. Uh, but when you put them together, you can get um, some conflicting ideas about what this topic should stand for. Well, we should say first that the term ecofeminism was coined in 1974 from a French feminist, Francois Dubon, who wrote a book in French that I can't translate the name of. <laughs> I thought you were going to go for it, Kristen. I was really excited to hear hear some French pop out of you. But you're right. And another significant author, Yunestra King, went so far as to call ecofeminism the third wave of the feminist movement. Which is a pretty radical statement to make, because we've talked a lot about, you know, first wave feminism, second wave feminism of, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s in particular. And then there's been a lot of debate about whether or not a third wave exists, what it is. And saying that ecofeminism is the third wave is pretty bold, I'd say. In your opinion? In my opinion, yes. Well, again, this is one of those things where on the surface it does seem like it makes sense because think of, you know, the messages we're bombarded with on a daily basis about the environment. It's something we've got to save, we've got to conserve oil, we've got to 
live our lives in a more friendly way to the earth so that our grandchildren and our, those kids' grandchildren, they have a place to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they are saying is that feminists and women in general have a special interest in saving the environment in this way because, and this is where things start to get a little tricky, because you throw in the O word, oppression. Oppression. Yeah, this is actually the word that I I generally like to avoid when discussing feminism. And so this is why it's tricky, because uh, eco-feminists would say that the oppression of the women and the oppression and destruction of the earth and nature are closely connected because you can blame both of them on men. Men and patriarchy. Um, and this is, again, I mean, this is, you know, right here, you can probably see where it starts to get a little bit tricky because this implies somehow that all the damage done to the earth is by men and uh, that, you know, women are oppressed. And like Kristen said, it's not a word we like to throw out because I wouldn't say that I feel oppressed. I would say that things could uh, change so that there's more equality in the world. Right. Just the word oppressed in general seems to present sort of a victim mentality that I'd say that just speaking for myself that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. But that's really the crux of ecofeminism as it came out in the mid-1970s. It has evolved somewhat since then, but that's really the root of it. Now, another facet of ecofeminism that some ecofeminists will adopt and some will throw away is the idea that because women are the homemakers and uh, the ones who are gathering food, let's say, then they have some sort of special connection to the earth and a special desire to make sure that it continues to exist for their children. Um, some people find this to be a very demeaning point of view because it says that, you know, only women have this connection. Other women find it very empowering that, yes, we are somehow closer to the earth by virtue of being, you know, mothers, mother, mother earth. The connection is, is, is made by a few people. Yeah. And that's kind of the interesting thing about ecofeminism because it's, it's a pretty radical school of thought in terms of linking, you know, this, this environmental oppression to so-called female oppression. But at the same time, it kind of saddles women with this mother childbearing, you know, um, function that a lot of second wave feminists were trying to kind of get away from, right. you know, of becoming saying that women are more than mothers. We're more than, you know, baby machines. We are. People and individuals. Right. And some eco-feminists do have sort of that more second wave view where they're saying, okay, yes, maybe we have these typically stereotypically female traits such as cooperation and sensitivity. And these seem to be married with, you know, the so-called male traits of um, aggressively pursuing an idea in a way that will somehow, you know, solve our environmental problems. But others will just say, no, you know, we're, we're mothers. We must mother the earth. And it, it's kind of a, I mean, not to pass judgment, but to put it simply, it's sort of a hippy-dippy idea that a lot of feminist academics yes. have trouble with. Yeah. And another idea that these feminist academics have trouble with is the idea of spirituality within ecofeminism, because one of the things that came out of the ecofeminist movement, or was sort of happening at the same time, was this uh, emergence of earth goddesses mm-hmm. and rejecting uh, a church that some viewed as patriarchal to you know, worship at the altar of, of earth goddesses. And so when you've got one eco-feminist saying, you know, our, our earth mother and our earth goddesses compel us to take care of the environment, and then you've got someone who's trying to make a very academic argument to, let's say, the, the president. Like, I wouldn't go to the president and say the earth goddesses compel us 
to do this. So that's sort of one of the big divides between uh, some eco-feminists. So in critiquing this spiritual aspect that's sometimes attached to eco-feminism, Molly and I came across an article by Joni Seeger about the coming age of feminist environmentalism. And it's very apparent that Seeger prefers feminist environmentalism to eco-feminism, specifically because she says that eco-feminism as a term is too much of a dual signifier. Essentially, it tries to do too much at one time, trying to be a, an environmental movement, a feminine, driven by feminist ideals, but also this, you know, spiritual movement as well. Because regardless of whether you choose to identify yourself as a female environment, a feminist environmentalist, as Seeger does, or as an eco-feminist, you have the same goals. So I think that Seeger was making a pretty interesting point of eco-feminism has too much baggage attached to it. And that's an argument we hear about regular feminism. Sure. The word is just too loaded. Let's get rid of it. Because what we're after, what eco-feminists or feminist environmentalists are after, are addressing issues like water pollution, deforestation, toxic waste dumping, uh, agricultural development, sustainability, animal rights, nuclear weapons policies, all these things that uh, we we have a stake in, we have interest in. And, you know, Chris and I were talking about it. We have stakes in these as human beings. Do we need to have additional stakes in these causes as feminists? And it makes sense that Ecofeminism took off when it did in the mid-1970s and early 1980s because there were different m- environmental movements sprouting up across the world, actually. Um, there's an ecofeminist movement in Kenya around that time called the Green Belt Movement that really just started as a local community tree planting effort. And it was a gr- group of local women who were wanting to address the lack of um, local water and the effects of soil erosion and all of the uh, the problems caused by deforestation. And so they got together and started um, planting trees on a on a large scale effort to replace those um, the ones that had been removed. And then over in the United States in 1978, we have the Love Canal disaster in upstate New York, in which a, chem- a chemical landfill site leaked into a neighborhood, and there were all of these chronic illnesses and um, other certain health ripple effects that came up as a result of it. And let's talk about the Chipko movement, which is often yes. heral- heralded as the, you know, defining moment of ecofeminism. Because what was happening, this is in the Himalayas of northern India, and uh, the government is allowing more and more companies to come into the forests there and take trees. Like, I think one of the big companies was a sports equipment company was going to come in and make tennis rackets out of the trees. Uh, but when they you know, cut the trees down, then there would be landslides, flooding, soil erosion, And this affected the women. And this is, you know, one of the arguments is that because these environmental disasters affect women in their roles as gathering water, cooking, et cetera, that that's why women have a a special interest in this. But what they did is they managed to, you know, get all the women to go together to the trees that were remaining when they heard someone was going to come in and cut them down. And they put their arms around the tree to hug them, Mm -hmm. tree hugging so that uh, the people couldn't cut down the tree. And Shipko means to cling in Hindi. So that's, uh, you know, by, by standing up, by standing between the saw and the tree, these women managed to save the trees. Yeah, and I had no idea that this concept of tree huggers, if you will, really started in the Himalayas of northern India. By a group of women. By a group of women. And yeah. they're saying that this is significant in terms of eco-feminism because they went to the entire villages and said... 
you know, we need you all to come out and hug the trees because people are going to cut them down. It's going to be bad for our little village. And it was only the women who responded. It was only by making that appeal to women that, you know, there will be a landslide and your home will be flooded if we don't do this, that women were able to see the importance of the effort. And in these more rural areas, uh, ecofeminism and ecofeminist movements like Chipco make a lot of sense because women are really the primary stakeholders in terms of going out and needing to gather wood for fire or get fresh water for cooking or, you know, getting all of these things they need to take care of their homes. And I feel like once you translate that to Western culture, it becomes a little bit more diluted and a little bit more um, condescending a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the problem that you mentioned earlier, Kristen, is that if we're all walking around as these big earth mamas, that that is sort of what second wave feminists were trying to get us away from. Because it could be a person's entire job just to be a mother and then or to be an environmentalist. And it does it limit them to put this label on them? So it's it can get tricky. And, you know, also where we're doing the most polluting are in the Western countries. Mm-hmm. So these um, these more uh, village oriented communities, they say, are not doing the extent of damage that we're doing in terms in you know in our part of the world well it's interesting too just thinking about it now in t- in terms of the this idea that women are not doing as much environmental damage as men like the the patriarchy etc is it's the cause of all this environmental destruction whereas in you know in the united states women are generally in control of what something like 85% of household consumer purchases exactly so while yes we we have the power to lead a movement but at the same time over the years, we have been in charge of household budgets and have certainly been contributing our fair share to environmental destruction as well. So I think that before we start, you know, going, going all Gaia on everybody, you know, not to be, not to be condescending about it, but, uh, I think it's, you know, that we have to examine our own actions first. I think that's very true. And that's probably one of the reasons why that word oppression just rubbed us the wrong way because uh, it does seem that when you're reading a lot of eco-feminist tracts that there is this tendency to want to blame the patriarchy for all of the world's problems. And it removes any any sort of responsibility from our shoulders. But, if, you know, as long as you just say that you're oppressed and you're a victim, then then you aren't, you know, it removes the, the, the notion that you could have contributed anything to it. Exactly. So to me, the question, Kristen, and I don't know the answer, this is what we'll need, uh, the input from our listeners to, to think on is if we are, you know, refusing this, uh, victim role, mm-hmm. but we still have a care, we still have a lot of concerns about the environment. Mm-hmm. Is it more helpful to view environmental problems through a feminist lens or are the two just unrelated entirely and, uh, you know, just complicating the issue? So in other words, do you think ecofeminism is necessary? Like you, Molly, I don't know the answer either. So let's turn it over to our very wise listeners and see what they think. Because like you said, I mean, it's, you know, we don't want to um, come down on this term. And we certainly don't want to come down on environmentalism or on feminism. Yeah, I like but both the question of those is, concepts a yeah, lot. But do you need to, you know, smash them both together? Are, are the two joined too much? Exactly. And that's what we want your thoughts on, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And in the meantime, let's read some people who have already written into that very same email address. 
have one from Lydia about the Picos podcast. And I will say that one of our sources said you could say it Picos. Other people are very adamant that it's PCOS. Hmm. I say you call it whatever you want to. I think people will get, will get the picture. And uh, Lydia shares a few points here about what you should do if you get a diagnosis or suspect you have it. She writes, if you suspect you have Picos, the first step would be, go, would be to go to a gynecologist and tell her of your suspicions. If you feel you aren't getting adequate care or she dismisses you, see a reproductive endocrinologist, even if you aren't trying to get pregnant. REs are fertility specialists and generally very knowledgeable about PCOS. I perplexed my OBGYN, but was diagnosed in 15 minutes by my RE. And then she says, and I think this is pretty important, with lifestyle changes and good medical care, PCOS is manageable. Don't lose hope. All right, I've got one here for about our podcast on long-distance relationships, and this is from Brianna. And for a little background, Brianna has been in two LDRs in her life, and she, her first one was with a guy in England that she met online, and they ended up getting engaged, and she broke things off. But this is what she has to say. For me, there is nothing more revealing than text. You're forced to truly think about what you are saying, and honesty seems to prevail. Also, misunderstandings are typically addressed straight away. All in all, we were together for two years, and all other relationships until my current one paled in comparison. After having quote-unquote normal relationships following that one, I concluded that you can feel more distant from a person sitting next to you than a person an ocean away. It's an investment, and when you choose to enter an LDR, both parties realize that it's a serious undertaking of great import. The constant nurture required to sustain it can actually be a very rewarding experience rather than an exhaustive one. So after years of normal relationships and met another fellow online, this time from even them farther away, I knew what I would be in for. I knew the difficulty it would entail, but I also knew the lavish rewards that were to be reaped. Although it's painful to be apart, it makes one realize the amazing value of the smallest details of being with someone that others take for granted. Hearing the person you love so dearly's heartbeat for the very first time is an experience of sheer bliss and gratitude. So thank you, Brianna. And again, if you guys want to send us an email, it's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Hit us up on Facebook as well and share your thoughts with other listeners. Follow us on Twitter if you'd like. And lastly, you can head over to our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You, and you can find it along with How Ecofeminism Works at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. 
and stream anytime.